0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 for our study this morning. Ecclesiastes 7. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, that your mercies are new this morning. Thank you that you're here with us. Lord, we pray that you would do a great work in the Czech Republic and really strengthen and refresh Milan and Zita. And God, that you would do a great work in our hearts this morning, that we would look to you, Jesus, that we wouldn't look to rules or systems, but really deepen our relationship with you. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 7 brings a huge shift in the book. We find Solomon going from a hedonistic perspective to a moralistic uh, perspective. Hedonism is the seeking of pleasure above all else. A hedonist would say life's goal and aim is to live for pleasure. That's emptiness. Solomon has established that for us. He's tried everything under the sun. Now Solomon turns to be the classic good guy. The classic guy that is living according to good morals and he's also going to point to that morals apart from a relationship with God is empty as well. Many times people's lives kind of follow this track even apart from Christ. Get into this mode of of being wild and crazy and doing all these uh, sinful things and then even not knowing the Lord realizing this isn't going to work out so well. So they shift and say well it's time to get my act together. It's time to be wise, but they may never come to a place of understanding their need for Christ's forgiveness and his work in their lives. So in chapter 7, there's a lot of great wisdom for us. There's a lot of wisdom that we really can glean from, and then ultimately at the end of the chapter, it shows us how we need a savior, that we fall short of this wisdom that we so desperately need in our lives. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. In this section of the chapter, it's comparison. Solomon's using the word better. This is better than that. That's a great way for us to learn. And the first he says is a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name being a, your reputation. Precious ointment would be extremely rare and extremely valuable. So we think about what's rare and valuable in our culture. Well, a good name, your reputation, glorifying the Lord is even more important than any monetary value. Then he declares that your death is better than your birth. From our perspective, many times birth is better than death. So many things to look forward to in your birth, and there's many things that we sorrow about in death. This is only true if a person is in Christ. If they know Christ as their Savior, then heaven awaits them. Their last breath here on earth is their first breath in heaven. We think about the glory of heaven. Psalms 116 tells us, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he put it this way, Death is the end of dying. On the day of the believer's death, dying is over forever. The saints who are with God shall never die anymore. Life is wrestling, struggling, but death is the end of conflict. It is rest and victory. So that's a great hope for us. As we come to that place when the Lord knows when we die, our death is better than our birth because we're in Christ. Verse two, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. If we had a choice between the house of feasting or the house of mourning, what would we choose? We would all choose feasting. Broncos are playing today, right? Go over to your friend's house, eat some good food, celebrate. Hopefully the Broncos go 3 and 0. That sounds a lot more fun than going to a memorial service this afternoon, doesn't it? To mourn the loss of a loved one, a close family member, a friend. But Solomon tells us it's better for us to go to the house of mourning because we will take it to heart because this is the end of all men. There's something eerie about sitting in a funeral because it's the fate of all of us. The statistics on death are amazing, right? Everyone's gonna die. Everyone passes away. We all have an expiration date that God knows that's been placed upon us, but we don't know. And when we sit in that moment and we think about our lives and we think about eternity, we think about what's really important, there's heart change that happens. We glean about God and we glean about the way that he wants us to be loving and investing in others. Some things that seemed important before we came into the funeral don't seem so important when when we leave. Verse 3 continues this thought. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. We would choose laughter, but Solomon in wisdom is saying sorrow is better because a sad countenance is where the heart is made better. God does great work in our hearts through pain if we allow him to. There's a series of books that were written for kids by Lois Lowry, and the first of the books is called The Giver. Also, a movie was was done off of that particular book. The idea is you have a group of people that make a utopia, this community where They try to have the absence of pain. And what they did is they wiped out all of the memories of difficulty in people's lives. Not only any pain that they might have experienced, but any memory of pain in society. So there was no memory of war. There was no memory of famine. And then thinking that that would produce this greater society. One particular old man has the keeping of the memories. That's was his task was, to hold on to all of these memories. And he's passing those memories off to a young protege. But in the book, you discover that this is actually not helpful for society because true life change and growth happens through pain. You think about it in your life, how have you learned about Christ and how have you learned the important lessons in your life It comes through pain? And I was thinking about this a few years ago and thinking about things that I have learned and very rarely has it been with the absence of pain. It's in the the pain and the emotion, God's made us emotional and we're in that place of sorrow that our heart is made better, that God's actually able to do surgery on our hearts. There's not a lot of life change that happens at Disneyland, as fun as that is, in my perspective, Disneyland is a place of sorrow, right? <laughs> Spend a ton of money, stand in line all day, right? Everybody has a meltdown. Woo! <laughs> this, this is great fun. This is, a, this is a great time. But think of maybe the best vacation that you've ever had or just a time of, of feasting. God can change our lives in those moments, but usually it's pain and usually it's sorrow. So we need to remember this when sorrow comes we need to remember this when we find ourselves in the place of mourning verse 4 the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth we would say we want a heart of wisdom we want to be a person of wisdom many times someone who is a godly wise person has gone through difficulty they've gone through sorrow And God has met them and taught them wisdom through that pain. In verse 5, better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Church, there's a lot of song of fools out there, isn't there? And it's better to hear the rebuke of a friend than to just hear the song of fools, the song of praise. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend is going to tell you difficult things, the truth and love, because they care about you. Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Very famous verse, a very quoted verse. But this is a very painful verse. Have you ever seen iron sharpen iron? There's sparks going everywhere, and a friend is going to do that to your face, right? No, thank you. I don't want iron sharpening me in that way. But this is where change happens. This is where growth happens. It's not easy. It's painful. It's difficult, but it's worthwhile. Are we the kind of person that can hear a rebuke from the right source? You have your spouse, your family member, a friend, a brother and sister in Christ that's walked with you for a while. You know they care about you. And they say, you know what? Can I share this with you? Many times our character is like the moon. There's the dark side of the moon that can't be seen. There's the dark side of my personality. There's the dark side of my soul. We can be difficult to be around. And someone says, if you keep doing this, this is going to bring destruction. So I care about you and I'm bringing this rebuke to you. In verse six, for like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so you picture the the crackling under a pot as the pot is being heated, so the laughter of the fool, so the laughter of the fool is like this crackling that doesn't stop. This is also vanity. So who do you want to be around, you know? Do you want to be around someone that's always laughing, always having a good time, but they're not a true friend. They're not going to rebuke you in truth and in, in love. Verse seven Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. Another translation puts this verse this way. Surely the practice of exhortation turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe destroys the mind. In verse eight, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Comparison, the end of a thing is, is better than the beginning. In Christ, the best is yet to come. In Christ, He finishes the good work that He has started. And for us in wisdom, to have the faith to say, the end is going to be better than the beginning. I'm looking forward to what God has in the future. Then God tells us that the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. A patient spirit is one that says, I'm not in a hurry. One that says, I'm willing to endure. I'm willing to go through life at the pace that God has set. There's a rest and there's a stillness about my spirit. And that's better than the proud in spirit. Oftentimes, when there's a lack of patience in my life, it exposes that my heart is prideful. If I'm getting upset at the grocery store that the line is not moving quick enough, what am I really saying? I'm the most important person in King Supers right? It's all about me. Everybody needs to get through the line. Have you ever had somebody in the grocery line that, for whatever reason, just can't get their act together to pay? Maybe they're getting out their debit card or their credit card, and they can't get the machine to work. And if we're in that place of a proud spirit, what are we thinking? Hey, do you need me to do that for you, right? Like, this is taking way too long, In reality, maybe it took an extra two minutes of our day. Are we that important? Is two minutes of our lives so important? If, If I'm angry on the road, many times it's because it's proud in spirit, right? I'm not being patient. I'm the most important person on the road. When we're in a place of anger in our homes, probably proud in spirit. In those moments, we're saying, hey, I'm the most important person in the house right now. And everybody needs to do what I want, right? So in wisdom, a patient spirit, a humble spirit, is much better than a proud spirit. Verse 9, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Don't be quick to be angry. Anger gets us in so much trouble so many times. It leads to sin in our lives, don't allow anger to rest upon your chest, upon your bosom. Is anger very near in your life where it doesn't take a whole lot? The fuse is pretty short. And God has the power to be able to transform our hearts and to take anger out of our lives. Cause caused me to examine the question, that, am I an angry person? Am I a person where Anger is is right there in my heart and my life. God, would you do a work of transformation? I recently read a book a few weeks ago. I was in Dan Johnson's office. Our missions pastor was looking at his bookshelf, and I borrowed one of his books called Unbroken. It's about Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was an Olympic athlete as a 19-year-old, grew up in an Italian immigrant family, was running a mile in four minutes and 16 seconds. Can you imagine? If I run an eight-minute mile, I've had a very good day, (laughs) right? He's cruising. Many thought he'd be the first person to break a four-minute mile. He had a bright future in front of him. World War II hits. He enlists, finds himself in the Air Force on a bomber, you got to read the book. I know there's a movie about it, but the book is so much greater than the movie. All these crazy things happen. Finds himself crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Just him and his friend Phil live. And one other guy, three of them on this raft. They're on the raft for 47 days. They survive on the rafts for 47 days. Is the longest that anyone lived on a raft at that time. They broke the record. And you're just crying out as you're reading this book that they would get rescued. 47 days, they see an island. You're like, yes! Turns out to be a Japanese island. Louis gets taken to an execution island. The whole purpose of going to the island was to be executed. Makes it through that season. He finds himself in three or four different prison camps. At one of the prison camps, there's a guard, an official, that they nicknamed the Bird. And he was out of his mind in the way that he would treat the soldiers, the POWs. But he focused his anger upon Louis because Louis had been this famous Olympic athlete and would beat him daily. Go find him in the prison camp and torture him and torture him and torture him. Somehow, Louis lives. Somehow, he survives, finds himself back at home in California, gets married, but he's a mess. His life is completely out of control. He can't control all of the anger in his heart, specifically towards this man, the bird. Every time he goes to sleep, he has these terrible nightmares, and it becomes his obsession to want to kill the bird. He's married, becoming very violent with his wife drinking a ton of alcohol, the alcohol numbing him, doing regretful things in in bars. Wife leaves for a time, comes back, says, Louis, we've got to go to this Billy Graham crusade. Billy Graham was doing a crusade there in Southern California and was staying because so many people were getting saved night after night and changed his schedule to stay there, continue to, to preach. Louis decided to go and he walked out. His wife continues to harass. You need to go again. Goes again and he gets saved. And he writes and he describes when he received Christ as his savior, the anger was lifted off of his bosom. The anger was lifted off of of his chest. He never had a nightmare again about the bird. This intense desire to, to kill the bird, this crazy officer went away. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the love of Jesus Christ to change a life, and I was reading that. I was encouraged by God's ability to currently work in our lives. You may not know Christ as your savior. You may not have trusted him for salvation. Jesus loves you, and he has the ability to change your life. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time but yet there's areas of our character where we go, you know what, this is right there in my heart and my life and too many times I respond this way. If we're willing to look to Christ, he's able to come in and to change our hearts, to make us a gentle person. That's the power of the gospel, that's the the power of forgiveness. Louis made a couple of trips back to Japan, found these guards that imprisoned him, many of them were still alive, and he extended God's forgiveness uh, to them. That's the power of who who God is. If we're willing to look to him and trust him and say, God, I want you to do a work in my heart and in my life. In verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Do you ever look back and go, those were the good old days? This is unwise because we don't remember accurately. The children of Israel, when they were in bondage, looked back as slaves during that time period, and said, that was really good (laughs) when we were slaves. That is not an accurate view of the past, right? But sometimes we do that. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can even look back to before we knew Christ as our Savior and go, oh, I was having so much fun. No, you weren't. You were hanging over the toilet in the morning, right? Don't look back. Maybe there was a wonderful time in friendship and fellowship, and you look back, oh, that was so good. That, that was the time that we had so many Christian friends, and now we're so isolated. Church, hear this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. God is always a God of the present. He is the God of this morning. He wants to meet us in our daily lives. He's ordained whatever we're going through, and we miss out on what he has for us today today because we're looking back when our attention is upon the past, when God wants our attention to be upon the present. verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. Some have received an incredible financial inheritance from their parents, but they don't have the wisdom to be able to navigate it. So Solomon is saying, wisdom with a financial inheritance, that's profitable, that's gain. verse 12, for wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Wisdom matched with money does provide a defense. Wealth is not evil, money is not bad, it's our attitude towards it, And there's a certain level of defense that money can provide when it is mixed with wisdom. It's not the ultimate security, but it can provide some security. The source of wisdom comes through the excellency of knowledge. As we learn about Christ and we learn about who he is, wisdom results in our lives. Verse 13 Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? If God makes something crooked, it's going to be crooked. You can't make it straight, right? That's his work in our lives. He gives and he takes away. And when he takes away, that's what happens. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. But in the day of adversity, consider surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. So that man can find out nothing that will come after him. There are days of prosperity. Be joyful. There are days of adversity. Remember, God's appointed them both. God is working in both. If we didn't have seasons of adversity, the times of blessing and prosperity wouldn't be near as joyful, right? When you've been sick, all of a sudden when you're healthy, you're like, "Woo!" I feel so good. This is, this is incredible, right? When you go through a loss of a friendship and God provides another, you're, oh, I'm so thankful for this friend that God has provided. When you go through financial difficulty and go without, then when God provides, you're not taking it for granted. You're like, I, I am so thankful to go buy groceries because I know what it's like to not be able to buy the groceries, the end of verse 14 tells us that we're not gonna find out what's gonna come after us. So we can't focus on the future and we can't get concerned or we can't focus on the past and we can't get overly concerned with the future. We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know what's gonna take place. In verse 15, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. We've seen this, haven't we? Someone's walking with the Lord, they do have this wisdom, and yet they die young. From our perspective, they die prematurely. But then there's someone who lives like hell on wheels, right? And they've got nine lives like a cat. Just seems like nothing can be done to destroy them. And Solomon observes this as well. In verse 16, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Solomon here is not encouraging us to be wicked. When we read this and we don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wise, what is he referring to? He's referring to being self-righteous. The lack of humility in our lives. The Pharisees were probably the classic moralists that were squeaky clean from an outward perspective, but their hearts were far from God. They didn't have a relationship with God, and there wasn't a true godliness in their lives. We don't want to be pious. We don't want to be puffed up. We don't want to be overly righteous. We want to be honest about our own struggles and sins and shortcomings. Verse 18 It's good that you grasp this. Solomon's saying it's it's good that you grasp this balance of not being overly wicked and overly righteous. And also, do not remove from your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. So in fearing God and putting God in his proper place, we won't be overly righteous. We won't be in a place where we're pursuing wickedness. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. So when there's wisdom in our lives, there's strength that comes, even more so than having ten key leaders surrounding you. Verse 20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Sounds a lot like Paul in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What Solomon starts to expose here in this last section of the chapter is wisdom is good and there's value in wisdom. It's greater than the hedonistic perspective, but the problem is I fall short. The problem is I sin. We thankfully get to live our lives under the impact of the cross of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Solomon is looking forward to the coming Messiah. But he's living under the old covenant. That is a moralistic perspective. That is a set of rules and laws. Do you know how that frustrating that would be to have a relationship with God that's based upon the law? Because you're always falling short. You're always needing sacrifice. The animals could cover sin but not take away sin. So wisdom is good. The problem is, is we can't live up to it. In verse 21, also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even when you have cursed others. (laughs) Don't take to heart everything people say. This will save us a lot of hardship, won't it? Maybe you, hear somebody talking bad about you, right? You overhear a conversation that you weren't supposed to hear. You were included on a group text and they didn't realize that you were on it and they're talking about you. Or even worse, they texted you on accident, but yet they were talking bad about you. It's really easy to take that to heart, get discouraged, get angry, how could they? And what Solomon's encouraging is, never mind. Let it go. Don't try to correct it. Turn a blind eye and a deaf ear, because in our hearts, we know we've cursed others. In our hearts, we know that we've talked bad about others. You know, the life of the pastor is very public. You can't avoid it, right? Your life is out there, and Pastors are making decisions and leading and teaching the word. And not always, but sometimes people get upset with us. And there'll be times where I'll walk up to two or three people in the foyer, and you just get the sense by their body language, oh yeah, they were talking about me. Not in a positive way, right? (laughs) Maybe over here, just a little bit of the end of the conversation then they turn and say, oh, Pastor Eric, it's so good to see you. We love your teaching, right? And what does my flesh want to do? No, you don't love my teaching. You're just talking smack. Like, let's take this to the back alley. Let's just do this for real. You know, come on. Let's be, let's be honest with each other, right? Take it all personal. Get all puffy. And, you know, why are you, why are you talking bad about me, right? That, that whole thing. And this verse has brought a lot of comfort to me to say, you know what? I know that I've talked trash about others. I know that so many times I've, I've been guilty about not handling my frustration appropriately. And, and I'm not gonna put the pedal to the metal on this one. I'm gonna simply just say, hey, great to see you guys. Lord bless you. I'll just let you finish your conversation and walk away, right, you know? Verse 23. All this I've proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. To me this is the key verse in verse 23. It's because Solomon's saying I proved something here. I've proved that wisdom is better. I think we would all agree this morning, isn't wisdom better in our lives? To have the knowledge of God in the way that he wants us to live and then do it and apply that to our daily lives. And then there's this decision of Solomon. Solomon saying, I have decided I will be wise. But then what does he say? It's far from me. I can't live up to this standard of wisdom. I can't live up to this wisdom that I am also teaching others. Probably for most of us this morning, not all of us, we've come to a perspective of saying, I desire wisdom in my life. That's why we're here, right? But yet we also experience this frustration because we fall short. Have you ever said, you know what? I'm ready to learn about this area of marriage, so I'm gonna get a few books, gonna listen to some podcasts. I'm really gonna try to grow as a godly husband, as a godly wife. Okay, this whole parenting thing. I need some resources. I need some tools. I'm really gonna learn about this. Okay, finances, I'm... Tired of making foolish decisions with money. I'm ready to have some godly wisdom. Of course, who do you call? Dave Ramsey, right? (laughs) Get the total money makeover, right? All right, I'm going to do this. All good things. But inevitably, at some point in the process, we experience our own depravity, don't we? I cannot follow through with these things in this book the way that I'm supposed to. And I'm trying to do better, but it feels like I'm doing worse. And before long, we find ourselves walking in tremendous frustration and condemnation. So let me suggest to you this morning, there's a better way than simply being a moralist. Do you know that we're not moralists? We're into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not just about being squeaky clean, right? That's not God's intent and God's desire. And so in that brokenness of our depravity, it brings us to Jesus, even as believers. And we're reminded of the gospel, that he loves us, that he demonstrated his love towards us while we were yet sinners. So we've fallen short, but that has not canceled out his unconditional love. We spend time thinking about the cross, That because Christ was crucified, my sin is forgiven, but also the power of sin is broken. Paul writes in Colossians, he says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Instead of relying upon our own strength and our own resources to turn to Christ and look to Christ and say, I see the value of wisdom. I desire this in my heart and my life, but I can't do it, so I need you. I need your help, I need your strength, and I'm making the decision to follow, but honestly, Jesus, if you don't show up in my life, I'm sunk. It's not by my power or my might, but it's by your spirit. I am in this place where I'm ready to follow, but I need your help. That's entirely different. So a godly life is important, but why and how is even more important. Why? Why do we wanna have a godly life? Well, because I see the benefit of wisdom in my life. Psst, gong, wrong answer, right? We're not just trying to live a godly life because we want a better life. I don't see Jesus going around saying, this is your best life now. You want your best life now? Then live in this manner, right? What did Jesus declare? That, that he's God and we get to live for his glory, So it's not just about my life being better, but God, I want you to be glorified. That's the why. And the how is Jesus. So that when people see our lives and they go, wow, you seem to be living in wisdom. You say, you know what? The only reason there might be wisdom being lived out in my life is because of the reality of Christ. Because he's forgiven me of my sins and he is helping me. I couldn't Live this way apart from Jesus. I couldn't manage my finances apart from Jesus. I couldn't have self-control apart from Jesus. You see the difference? So let's look at verse 24 and verse 25. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon's really seeking after wisdom and answers. This is one of his conundrums. This is what got Solomon in verse 26. I find more bitter than death the women whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, Who please, he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. What really caused... Solomon to fall from wisdom was women, was his choice in marriage. It was sexual sin. It was sexual immorality. You're saying, well, wait a second. I thought that Solomon was married to all these women and sex inside of marriage is good. Yes, sex inside of marriage is good, but not when you have a thousand wives. That's abusing the system. That's making every girlfriend a wife and calling it good, right? Right? And God had warned the kings to not multiply wives unto themselves. And 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon went to all of the pagan nations where they didn't know God. He didn't care that they didn't know God. So he married of the Egyptians and the Amorites and all the ites in the Bible. He says, come on, I want these foreign women to to be my wives. And something tragic happens there. It says that these women then drew his heart away from God, and Solomon went into idolatry. His heart wasn't loyal to God. He was serving many, many gods. And Solomon expresses this here. He says, I've been caught in this trap, and you're going to be blessed if you are not caught in the trap of an immoral person. What's interesting about Solomon's writing is so much of what he wrote about was warning about the immoral person in the book of Proverbs. But yet, he finds himself falling into it. In verse 27, here's what I've found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found. So I found a a good friend out of a thousand men. But a woman among all these I have not found. Now, please don't misunderstand. This is not a statement on women, This is on statement of Solomon's inability to choose a virtuous woman, right? Here he married these 1,000 women, but he says, of all these 1,000, there was not one who I would trust. There's not one who is virtuous. Proverbs 31, verse 10 says, Who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies? Men, if you're married to a godly woman, you have a tremendous gift from God. Go home and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? Ladies, if you're married to a godly man, go home and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because it's rare to be able to find that. Verse 29. Truly, this one thing I've found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God's design was good. The problem was our sin. Let me throw you a little bit of a curveball. All right? I think a moralistic worldview is almost easier to fall into than a hedonistic worldview. What do I mean? Most people get to a place of understanding sin has a big price tag. And they decide, I want wisdom. Do you think that there will be a lot of moralistic people that won't be in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely because they're trusting in the fact, I'm a good guy. You know, I love my spouse, I pay my bills, I'm involved in my community, yada, 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 but they're not honest about their own sin before God and their need for Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, and you've been in a place where you're saying, I don't need Jesus to die for me, I would pray that you'd get saved, that you would realize that we all sin, that we all fall short of the glory of God. Like Solomon, here's the standard, but we've fallen short of that standard. And as we sing this last song, to come and receive Christ as your savior, to not trust in your works. But I wanna go a little bit further. I think that religious people tend to fall prey to a moralistic perspective instead of a Christ-focused perspective. The Pharisees were really good at coming to church, weren't they? They were really good at studying the scriptures. They could give a great Bible study. But they were not trusting in Jesus. You did not find the Pharisees crying out before Christ, saying, woe is me, for I'm a sinful man. And what's ironic about it is who killed Christ? The Pharisees, right? Here they were, so religious and so moral, but yet they were planning murder, right? And being a rule follower can really not transform our lives. And it's easy for us to start looking to a system on marriage. Here's these principles that are going to make for me to have a great marriage. Here's these principles that are going to make me a great, great parent. Here's the Bible study tools. I do verse-by-verse Bible study, right? I do inductive Bible study, And we're looking to our system. But there's not a lot of Jesus there. There's not a lot of brokenness before him. There's not a lot of trusting in him. A lot of relationship with him. And before you know it, we're following rules instead of following a relationship. And a relationship goes so much further. So what am I saying? Focus on Jesus. Focus on that relationship with him and relying on his power and his strength to be able to live in a wise manner. Otherwise, we're sunk. Otherwise, we can't do it. To walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to allow the Spirit of God to govern our lives. The Spirit wants to lead us, and then we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you have for today? What do you have for this afternoon? Help me in the words that I speak to glorify and honor you. And the Spirit of God is going to start to speak to us as we're willing to follow. He may say things like, shut your mouth, right? You're about ready to say some things that you're going to really regret. Just listen, right? And all of a sudden, we, we start to experience real life change that's not coming through rules, but coming through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you give to us your love. Jesus, we thank you that you declare to us that you are the way. It's not a way, it's not rules and regulations, but a very vibrant relationship with you. I know in my life, it's so easy to focus on systems and focus on rules, but that doesn't clean the heart. Only you, Jesus, can clean the heart. And like Solomon, we see the value of wisdom, but so many times it's far from us. So we express our need for you afresh this morning. Jesus, we need you. And would you do a great work in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.